You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. You all know I got two kids, uh, four-and-a-half-year-old Nora, two-and-a-half-year-old Johnny, and they are far away right now. They're in North Dakota with Adrian at Grandma's house, having a good time there. I don't know. I miss them a lot, for sure, because this is the longest we have been apart. Uh, we've been apart another time, like a week apart. This is going to be two weeks, and then I'm going to go out there and see them. But it'll be two weeks apart from them, which I've never done before. I've never been two weeks away from my kids. Because I was there, you know, from the second they were born, each of them, I was, I was right there. And even though, yeah, we've been apart, I've been at work, we've been out of town, different things, I've never been apart from them for so long, but they still know that I'm here. When I still talk to them on the phone, they, they know that I'm here. Because, like I said, I was there right when they were born. Our relationship started at that moment, maybe even before when Adrian was pregnant, but at the very least, the moment they were born, they had a relationship with their dad. I was there. And they didn't know it then, but as you know, they've grown up now, they do know it. And it, I've just been there. They know that they can cry daddy when they get hurt, and I'll sometimes run, sometimes walk over to them and pick them up and tell them it's going to be okay. They know that. They know that I'll read them a story at bedtime. You know, not every night. Sometimes Adrian does it, but they know that I'll do it, that I'm there to do it. They know that we're going to have fun together, wrestling and going for walks. They know that they're getting their next meal. They've never had to worry about that. They know they're taken care of and provided for. They know they have a house. And even when they're a thousand miles away, North Dakota, Nora still talks about being home. She knows this is her home. She knows she has a house. They know who I am. And it's something that sometimes could be taken for granted is, you know, if there is a, a group of a thousand guys and my kids had to find me, they could because they know who I am. Not everyone knows that about their dad. They, they could find me. It wasn't, that wasn't difficult for that relationship because I was there. It was just a natural thing that happened as a result of being there. And that's stuff that they don't even realize necessarily but they know that I'm there, I'll take care of them, I'll play with them, I'll provide for them. And that's how we should have been with God. That's how humanity, all people, should have been with God. That same type of relationship where it's not a question, where it doesn't seem like he's far away and he doesn't provide because God, we should be with him in fellowship, being taken care of, being provided for. I mean, we are, but we shouldn't know that. It should be obvious Because that's how it was at creation. That's how God made us. God made people very good. Where he made creation very good. And it says in Genesis that God walked with Adam. That they dwelt together in fellowship. So that relationship my kids have with me is the relationship we were supposed to have with God. That same exact thing as a natural thing. Just 
It just happened because it happened. The problem was, though, that even though God had made everything very good, Adam still sinned. That God had said, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, anything else you can do except for that? And, you know, we can talk about why that is. It's not time for that right now. But Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent who was Satan. And they disobeyed God. And that created sin. Sin entered the world through that act of rebellion. And that sin has separated us from God. Now we don't have that natural relationship like that, like my kids have with me, where it just happened as a result of being alive. Now our sin has separated us from God. Because God is holy and God is just. And if you overlooked sin, if you fellowshiped with us, if he had that relationship with us for no reason, without doing something about that sin, God would no longer be holy and just, and then he wouldn't be worthy of worship either. Because a God who's going to overlook evil is not a very loving God. You see, we, we think it's okay if God overlooks our own evil, but if God overlooks the evil of someone who abused you, for example, well, that's not so loving, is it? So justice is a part of loving, and part of that, and part of God's holiness, his perfection, as said, our sin has separated us from him in our natural state. And because of that, knowing God is not natural. It's not like it is with with our own kids, where we're just there and they know that through experience. It's not a natural thing to get to know God. It's not so easy as it is like knowing people on earth, you know, physical people. It's a different sort of thing that has to happen because we're naturally separated from God. We're going to start 2 Peter tonight, the letter of 2 Peter and 2 Peter is different than 1 Peter. We just got done with 1 Peter. And the, one of the main purposes of 1 Peter is that he's writing a letter of encouragement to new Christians who are suffering as a result of being Christian. And a lot of their lives had gotten more difficult since becoming a Christian. And he was telling them the right way to live and to encourage them when they're in their time of suffering. 2 Peter, though, is more about telling the people to understand their salvation. And the, the crux of it, the main point of the letter, is false teaching versus true teaching, which he brings up in chapter 2. But before he gets into that, he's reminding the, the readers, or he's telling them what their real salvation is so they understand that, so that they're not tricked by false teaching. And so what he starts this letter with is this idea of getting to know God. Because it's not a natural thing that just happens because of our sin and because it's not a natural relationship, it's a spiritual one. And so Peter is telling us we need to know God and know him on his terms, not on false ideas or false doctrine, which he'll get into in chapter 2. And the point we'll get into tonight, we'll just look at the first 11 verses, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Is about how we get to know God, even though we're separated from Him, but also not just knowing Him, but having a fruitful knowledge of God. A knowledge of God that actually does something in our lives that leads to transformation. So let's start the letter. We'll read it, and then we'll go back in and see what it says about getting to know God. So it starts by saying, Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll stop there for a sec just because it's the introduction. 
And just notice who it's from, Simon Peter, who is a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He knew Jesus personally, was the leader of the apostles and the disciples. And he's writing it to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to people who have the same faith he has, other Christians. Then it goes on. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. So he starts this letter by bringing up this idea of knowing who God is and that leading to a fruitful knowledge of him. And if we go back to verses 2 and 4, to me it's a very overwhelming chunk of scripture. It's one giant sentence with a lot of phrases that's hard to break down. But his point in verses 2 and 4 is talking about that idea of getting to know God better. What knowledge of God leads to, or what are the benefits of knowing God? So let's look at that. He brings up some benefits in knowing God. First it says, verse 2, grace be multiplied to you. So one of the first benefits in knowing God is grace. And grace is God's undeserved favor for your life. Grace means that it's not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Grace means it's not that I so love God, but God so loved the world that he sent his son. Grace means that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's what grace means. It's not something that you deserve. It's undeserved merit in your life. And he says, grace be multiplied to you. And I think that's very important that he would say that grace be multiplied to you because grace in itself, I'm not sure if it can be multiplied because God's grace is unconditional grace. It's not that we love him, it's that he loves us, right? So there's not a condition, but that grace will be multiplied to us would say that I need to be reminded of God's grace in my life, that my understanding of God's grace will be multiplied to me. Because if, if it's not, and I get in these modes all the time where I forget it's by grace through faith we are saved, which means we're saved because of God's grace, which was demonstrated in Jesus' death on the cross, which we receive through faith. And if we're saved by grace, like it says in the Bible, which is undeserved to begin with, there's no way we can undeserve it by things that we do, because grace is grace. It's undeserved anyway. So if you didn't deserve it to start with, you're not going to undeserve it at some point. Because grace means all your sins are wiped clean, past, present, and future. All the penalty of those sins, I should say, is wiped clean. 
So when I forget, if, I, if grace is not multiplied to me, what I do is get very, very amped up. Like, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, got to do this, because I feel like I need to deserve it. So sometimes happens. Sometimes people get feeling very condemned. Like I did something too wrong that, that God couldn't forgive. And that's why Peter says, grace be multiplied to you. That's a benefit of getting to know God better. That grace will be multiplied to you. Another thing, though, it says grace and peace be multiplied to you. So peace would be a second benefit of knowing God better. We can look at peace in two different ways. One way is peace from God. To that, that idea of peace will be multiplied to us. Peace from God means that we were, while we were sinners, at enmity with God, the Bible says. That we were under God's wrath because we had a penalty to pay for our sin because he is a just God. But having peace from God means we are no longer under God's wrath. We are, we've been forgiven. The penalty has been removed, been paid for by Jesus. And that's what it means to have peace from God. We're not under his wrath anymore. But peace also means peace with God. We're content and joyful because we have a relationship with God now. And Peter says that grace and peace be multiplied to you. Then the next phrase, he says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I'm going to save that for a minute because that'll tie everything together. Verse 3 says, a third benefit of knowing God better. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So it's his divine power gives us all things, which again says it's because of grace. It doesn't depend on me. It depends on his divine power, which gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness, which means that God has given us everything we need to live a life that is pleasing for God. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, which is something we get, the rest of that verse, through the knowledge of him, who called us by glory and virtue. I'm going to save that phrase again too. Let's go to verse 4. There's the the fourth benefit. Is the great and precious promises, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So another benefit of knowing God better is his great and precious promises. Now there's too many of those to get into everything. Actually, I found this book. There's a library upstairs. You can check it out if you want. This is called All the Promises of the Bible. So I'm not going to teach this book. There's too many. But there's, there's a lot of promises God gives us. Some of them will be summed up right here, that you have grace. You have undeserved favor from God. You have peace. You're not under wrath and condemnation. You have all things that pertain to life and godliness. Those are some of his great and precious promises. Then it says, through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. And this is a very mind-blowing statement that I don't think I've got to the bottom of yet. I need to and I realize, like, I know I'm teaching the sermon right now, but I don't know if I can get to that. To, to, what's that really mean, to be a partaker of the divine nature? The word partaker in Greek, I mean, there's a good place to start, is the word koinonia, a close fellowship, is what that word means. So we have a close fellowship with the divine nature. 
Which part of what I'm getting, and again, I think that's so mind-blowing that, you know, we have our human nature, but now through his great and precious promises, we also become a partaker of the divine nature. And now what does that exactly mean? I think part of what it means is that we're a part of something bigger than us. We're a part of the divine nature. We, we, we have a part in this now, that God had a plan of redemption to save people from their sins and give us eternal life and a relationship with him. And now we have a part in that. We're a partaker of that divine nature because God gives us his Holy Spirit to live in us. Yeah, so God sends his son to become a man and die for us. And then that's how we're redeemed. That's how we're justified. But it says in 1 Corinthians that God uses the foolishness of this world to bring to shame the wisdom of the wise. And part of that is that he uses people like us to move his kingdom forward, to spread the gospel. Because God doesn't need us, but in his wisdom, he chose to use fools like us to be a part of that. So that we're a partaker of the divine nature means in some sense that we're a part of something much bigger than us. And so we need to be a part of that and realize we're not just in this little self-contained sphere where, you know, I just want to hear about God's blessings and not really do anything. But we're part of something bigger. We're a partaker of the divine nature, which the opposite, like I said, would be the human nature, which is what we're born with. Because it says the next part is having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. See, the, the word lust in Greek is like an overflowing passion. It's a compound word. It means that we cannot control our bodies. Our bodies are in control of us, in our human nature. What my body wants to do, I'm probably going to do it because my body is stronger than my mind with certain things. And it's different for everyone. You know, like what I've been struggling with lately, and it's not a sin, I, I'm not saying that, but it's just with food, for example, just to demonstrate this. So instead of eating for energy and sustenance, I'll eat and eat and eat until I feel full and then I don't feel very good. I mean, that's just an example of my body being stronger than my mind. I know I don't need to eat all that, but I keep eating it because my body wants it. And that's our human nature. What our body wants, it's probably going to do. Yeah, you can use willpower and stuff like that, but that's what our human nature does. And that's lust. That's Overpassion, over overwhelming passion. But through God's great and precious promises, we've become a partaker of the divine nature, which means we've been born again spiritually, which means we're not separated from God anymore. Again, we're part of something bigger than us. We're part of God's plan of redemption for the universe, for his entire creation. He's chosen people like us to be a part of that. So we have peace, grace, all things that pertain to life and godliness and great and precious promises. Now I said I skipped over a couple things that's going to tie together, which is how we get these things. Look back at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So there's the same word, two times in a row, two verses, which probably means it's important. And it shows up again a couple verses later, this idea of knowledge. So what it's saying is that grace and peace are multiplied to us through the knowledge of Jesus. That he gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. 
So it's through knowing him is how we get grace, peace, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Those things, what Peter wants his readers to know right away. We need to know who God is. That's how we get those things, is through the knowledge of him. Grace and peace increase through knowing God. His divine power gives us all things through knowing God. It's through the knowledge. Now, why, why is this important? I mean, there's lots of reasons. I had a few. Why it's important to know God. One is, it's easier to trust God if you know him. Because you'll know his personality. You'll know the things that he says. And then it's easier to trust him when you know him. I mean, if someone came up and told me and said, hey, you know, Ron called you a piece of human garbage. I would say, no, that doesn't sound like Ron. Ron doesn't say stuff like that. I know Ron better than that. Because I know him. That means I can trust him. And same with God. When we're, a lot of times we wonder, how do I know that God is speaking to me? How do I know it's not just my own sinful desire? How do I know it's not demonic? How do I know it's from God? When you know him, you know the kinds of stuff that he says because there's a huge book of stuff he says. And when you know his voice, you'll be able to differentiate that. Because if you don't know him very well, you won't know who's talking to you, and it's going to be very hard to trust him if you don't know him. It's also easier to love God if you know him. Because what you'll do is you'll love God for who he is, not for what he gives you, which is what true love is. If I only love my wife because she cooks food and cleans the house and does stuff like that, I don't really love her. I love having a servant. I think that's what what that is. If I love her, what true love is, is I love her for the person she is. And now when we know God, we'll get to love God for who he is. And we'll see that he's beautiful and we're part of something bigger than us. And he loves us and we love him just for who he is because we've gotten to know him. Now, I think the reverse of that's true too, that if you love someone, you'll want to know them. And I'll use my wife again as an example because she's not here to look embarrassed. If she wrote a book, I would read it. I am pretty confident in saying that. I would read a book she wrote, even if it's 2,000 pages, even if it's hard to understand, I would read it because I love her. I would want to, her, herself would be revealed through her writing. That's what writing does. I would want to get to know her better through that. And if it was hard to understand, I would ask her, what did you mean in this part? I don't get it. And she would probably help me to understand it. And so if we love God, we'll want to know him better. He wrote a 2,000-page book. That is hard to understand. But it's discerned spiritually, which means through prayer we can ask him, God, what did you mean by this part? And if that doesn't give you an answer, there's people like me who might be able to help. There's study Bibles. There's internet. I mean, there's a huge resource on the internet where you can figure out what God means in the book that he wrote. If you love him, you'll want to get to know him. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. And if you know God, it's going to be easier to serve him because you'll understand you're part of a bigger picture. It's not just about getting wrapped up in my own little self and God fix my life. It's a bigger picture. So then how do we get to know God better? We spend time with him. That's how you get to know anyone better. You spend time with him. 
One way to spend time with him is do stuff that he would do. Jesus says to take his yoke upon you, which means you're going to be close to him. You're going to be doing stuff that he would be doing. You're going to read this book that he wrote, 2,000 pages. Even if it's hard to understand, you'll figure it out because you love him and you want to know what he has to say. You'll ask questions. You'll ask him because it's spiritually discerned. And you'll pray. That's you talking to him. And what Peter gets to in chapter 2 of this is you won't listen to false teaching that tells you the wrong idea about God. And the next few verses are going to tell us how we can get to know God better. So let's look at 2 Peter now, chapter 1. Move on to verse 5 through 9, where it talks about now we add some actions to our knowledge. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So we get to know God better by adding actions to our knowledge so that we don't have unfruitful knowledge of God. We don't have barren or unfruitful knowledge like it says there, but that we would have fruitful knowledge of God. That is the goal. He says, for this reason, in verse 5, the reason is what we just talked about, that through knowledge we'll get grace, peace multiplied to us, all things that pertain to life and godliness, great and precious promises. For that reason, giving all diligence, and that's important, It doesn't just happen accidentally. It requires diligence, which is careful and serious and earnest. See, that's why I brought up my kids at the beginning, because that's a different thing. That just happened because I was there. With God, we are separated because of our sin. So it doesn't just happen like that. The same way it happens with people. It requires diligence. With all diligence. Now, this next part... I love this part. This is one of my favorite parts of the New Testament. Is what it does is it lays out a plan for us of sanctification. Sort of like a progress or a growth chart or a rubric, whatever you'd want to use with that. And, and I love that. Now let me explain sanctification quickly. Is the Bible, if you summarize salvation, is broken up into three big parts. And you can break it down more, and this is just theologically speaking. Now, the first part of our salvation is our justification. That's where we are declared innocent from the penalty of our sin. That means the penalty of sin is removed from us. That happens entirely by an act of God, by Jesus, living a perfect life in our place, dying on the cross in our place, and his blood pays the penalty for that sin. And justification is like that. It's an instantaneous act which we happens through faith. When we repent by faith and trust in that work, and that's an act of God, that's justification. That's the first step. Now I like skipping to the third step because people focus on these ones more. The third step in our salvation is called glorification. That's the end. That's what happens when Jesus comes back. We get new bodies and not just the penalty, or the penalty of sin is removed, but also the very presence of sin is removed from us. We do not want to sin anymore because we're face to face with God and we see how holy and perfect and beautiful he is and all those sinful desires are gone and we have a body that's not subject to flesh. That's the final part. Now there's a middle part. 
that I think is the, the weak point in a lot of Christian teaching is sanctification. What happens in between being saved and then going to heaven? Sanctification. That's where the power of sin is gradually removed from us. Where throughout our life we become more and more like Jesus because we're spending time with him and getting to know him. This is growing. Now these verses we're going to read give us a plan for that because it's kind of hard to say, yeah, sanctification, become more and more like Jesus. It's a lot easier if there's a, like an action step you could take. There's some stuff you could do, a way you could measure yourself. Now don't look at this as some legalistic thing like it's this step, then this step, then this step, then this step. But it is very helpful to understand the types of things you should be seeing in your life if you have been justified. So let's look at it. And the, the point of it is to have fruitful knowledge of God. And what that means, let me just explain in human terms. If I know that my wife likes Burger King, but I never take her there to eat, that is unfruitful knowledge. That knowledge did me no good. It didn't change my life in any way. It didn't benefit her. I just knew something and nothing else happened. We do not want that kind of knowledge with God. That's what it says in verse 8, to have unfruitful knowledge. We want fruitful knowledge that results in something. And that's what this is about. So let's look at it. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. So faith is the starting point. Faith is step one. Because that's what saves, we're saved by grace through faith. And this is the starting point of our salvation. It's putting our faith not in ourselves, but in Jesus. And this is very important. Because God uses faith as the means to save us. Because faith is the only thing that takes us outside of ourselves. If God saved us by grace through good deeds, I can still rely on myself. If God saved us by grace through church attendance, I, I can still rely on myself. If it's through anything except faith, that's still about me. Faith brings us outside of ourselves, which is why faith is required for salvation. And that's a gift of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So the first step in this is faith. Now, it says what to add to that, and it's, again, like a progression. If you don't see the next step happening, and here's the plan, where are you weak in the step before that? So it says, add to your faith virtue. So once you have saving faith in Jesus, you add to that virtue, which is basically being morally good. That will be the next thing to work on. It's not that you perfect these things in this lifetime, But Peter's saying, this is what you add to your faith. Add to your faith virtue. Now, a lot of people try to put virtue first. I'm going to clean up my life and then come to Jesus. That's not how it works. Faith is first. Add to that virtue. That will be the next step after faith. Then it says, to virtue, knowledge. So add knowledge to your virtue. Where it just means what we're talking about. Knowing more about Jesus. Knowing what pleases him, what displeases him, knowing what is right, what is wrong. Now these first three parts here are generally the beginning stages of Christianity. You know, baby Christians, we call them sometimes. That there's faith, there's virtue, and then there's knowledge. Where it's, I remember this stage when I was first saved where that was what it was all about. I wasn't serving anywhere. I wasn't doing anything. I was just trying to learn everything I could. That pure milk of the word. But this is where you can check yourself on this list. And that's what I want you to do afterwards is to pray about this and look at this and figure out kind of where you are on this. Like if you're not 
moving, let's say nothing is happening from your faith, then you have to question what's deficient in my faith. Is my life not getting more virtuous? Then you go back the step to the faith. But then it says to knowledge, add self-control. So once you start knowing who God is, knowing what's right and wrong, then you can start adding into that self-control. And this is stuff that God will do in you. Now, self-control is being able to control your passions, like we talked about, where you're not a slave to your body to do whatever your body wants, but now you have some control over it because you're a partaker of the divine nature. Then it says, to self-control, perseverance. Perseverance is someone who's not swerved from God's purpose in his or her life. And see how these kind of build off one another, where there's faith, adding to that virtue, morally good, just kind of cleaning up your life. It's not everything all at once, but God will work in you. Add to that knowledge, know more about God. Add to that self-control, being in control of yourself, which means you can add to that perseverance. Now you won't be swerved from God's purposes because you're not, though your body's not in control of you, you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. And so now he starts calling the shots. You're not swerved from his purpose. Even when things aren't going your way, you're still focused on his purpose. Then it says, add to perseverance, godliness. And godliness is being after God's heart. Because once you persevere, you, you're focused on God's purpose, then you'll start having a heart after God's heart, like it says of David. The things he cares about, you'll care about. And that'll keep you persevering. Add to perseverance, brotherly kindness which is, you know, liking people, being nice, and not because you can get something from them, but because they're made in God's image and likeness, and you just care about them. And add to that, the last part of the chain here, and the brotherly kindness, love. Because God is love. Not love is God, but God is love. It's a love that puts others first. And this this is the the top of the chain. Now here's the way that I kind of use this as a way to make a plan for myself to, so I can visualize the next thing that comes. And, and again, I don't, I'm not saying this is a legalistic thing, check, 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 but it's, it's a helpful guiding thing. So I'm going to say where, I, where I'm struggling, and it's not that you're perfect in any of these areas, but brotherly kindness is a struggle for me. And it's very hard to have love if I don't have brotherly kindness. I'm not going to say I don't have it because I have it much more than I did like a year or two ago but it's still a struggle for me. So then if brotherly kindness is tough for me just to be genuinely nice to people, it's very hard for me, well, what's the thing before that is godliness. So now what I'm going to do is be praying about that to give me a heart after your heart because when I have a heart after God's heart, then I'm going to start seeing people the way God sees them, which is going to lead me to brotherly kindness. See, and then love will be the thing after that. So that's, and that's where... Afterwards, you know, take some time this week, look at this and pray about it. Where are you kind of stuck? And be honest with yourself. It's not a contest, and that's what this next verse is. I mean, look at verse 8. Kind of keeps it in perspective. For if these things are yours and abound. And so there's two things there. If they're yours, I'm not going to say I don't have brotherly kindness or love. And abound, which means Increasing. You will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you can see these things in your life increasing, it means you don't have useless knowledge of God. 
It means you don't have the thing, like I said, where you know your wife loves Burger King, but you never take her there. It means that the knowledge you have of God is actually starting to transform you, and God is working in you by his Holy Spirit, and you are becoming sanctified. If you see these things in your life increasing, that is a good sign for you to have a victory in. And that's, you know, take, be encouraged by your victories. I mean, I was struggling just last Sunday as I was talking to someone, and the whole, there was a, a godly thing to do in front of me. And honestly, I didn't want to do it. And I was struggling with that. I ended up doing it, so I actually won the battle. But I was very dis- disappointed in myself that I had the battle. But that's what, what he says here is if it's increasing, so we can be encouraged by being victorious in it. That's that self-control. Now this verse, where it says two things to me implied there. One would be, since it says, if these things are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. One thing is it's very possible to have useless knowledge of God. If that knowledge doesn't change your life in any way. I mean, if you, right, just for example, there's all sorts of stuff we like to debate about as Christians that don't really lead anywhere. If you want to write like a 700-page book about the young earth, that's fine. But if that doesn't increase these qualities in you in any way, then what was the point? That's useless knowledge. So we need to be careful we don't have useless knowledge of God, but fruitful knowledge of God, which leads to these things. Another thing this verse says implies, where it says abounding, that increasing is important to God, and take comfort in that. That it's about a process. If God wanted these things to be perfect in you, he would do it like that. But for God's purposes, he wants abounding, increasing, not like that. Because it could say, if you have these qualities, if you're perfect in these qualities, but it doesn't. It says, if they're abounding. And I think, about, I think as Christians, we see it a lot. You know, when I was a teacher, I had a, a student who was probably five or six grade levels below on his writing abilities. And this kid worked really hard one year. And he went up, pro, I would guess, I mean, it's hard to evaluate, but I would guess he went up like three grade levels in his writing, which meant he's still way behind but he was like super proud of himself. He would show me his essay and say, look how much I wrote. Look, how, look at these paragraphs. I spent time on this. And I was like, yeah, great, awesome. You know, you're really improving, which was true. But then when I went to read it, my first thought was, man, this kid still has so far to go. And how terrible of me. And I, we think that way of ourselves as Christians and of other Christians too. A lot of times we don't look at that someone's improving, we just look at, oh, they're not where they should be. That's not, God says, if these are yours and abounding. And we can be encouraged in both our increasing and in other people's. Instead of just criticizing, well, you're not where you should be. That's not what it says. Now, what if you're not getting, if these aren't increasing in you? It tells you that in verse 9. He who lacks these things is short-sighted, even the blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. If you don't see these things increasing, it tells you exactly what that means. It means you're short-sighted. You're not seeing the big picture. You're too wrapped up in what's easy for you now and forgetting that you're a partaker of the divine nature, that there's something bigger out there that you're now a part of. So it's not just about you wrapped up in your own little container but about getting to know God in a fruitful way. But it says maybe even the blindness. 
You've forgotten that God died to pay for your sin. And if you have faith in that, out of thankfulness, you're going to get to know him. So if these things aren't increasing, what I take that to mean is you need to go back to the beginning of this chain. Is that faith real? Is it faith in what Jesus did for you? Now verse 10 and 11 give us a reason to do this. A few reasons for why we should know God and have fruitful knowledge of him. It says verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. So that's one reason to get to know God better because it will make our call and election sure. Now this gets back to the idea at the beginning we were talking about where we are not naturally in a relationship with God, at least in a saving relationship, because we're separated from our sin. And the way we become connected with him and forgiven is our call and election. The call that God awakened our dead heart, our heart of stone, and turned into a heart of flesh. The election means that he picked us. Now people fight over this word, which is, I would say, probably for the most part, unfruitful knowledge. But here's what election what election gets at. If you have 10 prisoners on death row, they're all going to die because they deserve it. And some guy comes in and says, you, 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 you've been pardoned. You're free to go. That's a little bit like election. Now what people do, why people get offended by this idea is because we tend to think, what about those other seven guys? Why don't they get to go? That's not the point. Those guys deserve to die. The point is how good that guy was who pardoned them. That's what election says, that he picked three people who didn't deserve to be pardoned to be pardoned. Now, here's the difference, though. It's not so clear as God saying, you, 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 I've elected you. The way you know God picked you is that you picked God. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You know God picked you when you picked him because you wouldn't pick him if he didn't pick you because he had to call you. So knowing God and having fruitful knowledge of him makes our call and election sure. I know that God picked me. And if God picked me because of his grace, I can't, un- I can't lose that. Because he picked me. He wouldn't pick me just to abandon me. He wouldn't have grace on me at one point and say, my grace has run out. That's not how grace works. And this is the assurance of salvation, to make your call and election sure. And the New Testament is very clear. We can be very, very confident in our salvation. It talks about having the full assurance of salvation. It's not something we need to question. Now, some people have assurance of salvation and they shouldn't. They've been told maybe you prayed a prayer one time, but none of these qualities are increasing. I'm not going to assure them of their salvation. It says if you're doing these things, your call in the election will be sure. But other people don't have assurance and they should. That they have a soft conscience and, and they're afraid. We can be sure of our call in the election. That's one reason to get to know God better. Second one, going on, if you do these things, you will never stumble. A lot of times stumbling is like a metaphor for sinning. If that's not what it's saying here in the context, it's talking about finishing. Because look at the next verse. This is the third reason. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because by knowing God and having fruitful knowledge of him, You make your calling election sure, which means you're going to get to God's kingdom. You won't stumble because God is the one who gets you there. That's why we do this. Why we have fruitful knowledge of him. So I'll end with 
my uh, lame attempt at a parable. I don't know why I just thought of it. But there was a man who was married. And that was it. He never spent any time with his wife. He never served her. He never did anything she wanted. But he was married to her. Is that good? And there was another man who was never married to a woman. But there was a woman that he loved. He spent time with her. He served her. He cherished her. But he never married her. Is that good? Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by him. See, we don't want to be the guy who loved his wife, but never. No, we don't want to be the guy who was married to his wife, but never did anything about it. That was unfruitful. That wasn't a real relationship. It was in name, but nothing came of it. We don't want to be like that. But we also don't want to be the guy who loved this woman, but never married her. Right? It's both. It's, we're called and elected, and we grow. Go back to my kids at the beginning and talking about their relationship with me. Again, they know me. They know who I am. And I can see that for better or for worse, they're starting to be like me, especially Nora, because she's older. And she's old enough now to understand when Adrian and I are arguing, which we should probably stop doing in front of her if she's starting to get it. It's not bad, but, you know, so here's here's what I do when, when I disagree. I always start with, well... Like, that's, that's my fighting word. Well, and then I'm going to come up with a defense for myself. So I notice when I tell Nora to do something and she doesn't want to do it, she's starting to go, well, and she does that same thing. It, it just happens because she's around me. She spends time with me. If you know Jesus, he's going to make you be like him, which is going to cause you to do the things that he does. Now, it's not going to be bad like me. It's going to be good because he's good. We don't want to say we're married and then nothing comes of it. We don't want to put all the commitment and not have the the right way of relationship that's through Jesus. You have to spend time with him, get to know him, and have fruitful knowledge of who he is. Because I would, maybe, I'll preface maybe, but I think that the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of humanity is that God provided a way for us to know him even though we are sinners and he is holy, even though we deserve condemnation for our sin, that God sent his son, his eternal son, who is God. He sent him to live in the flesh, live perfectly for us and die in our place and rose again to give us assurance in his Holy Spirit and to make us a part of his plan to spread the gospel and do his work. I think that's the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of humanity is that we can have a relationship with God. Yeah, it's not so easy like it is with my kids and me where I was just there. Because it's not natural. We are sinners separated by him naturally. But spiritually, through Jesus, we can know the Father. If you're not a Christian, you need to know Jesus. He's calling you. I know that. Because if you're not a Christian and you're listening, he's, he's calling you. That's how he works. That's what he did with me. So the first part of that is faith. Stop trusting in yourself for being a good person. And don't just say, I'm sorry, I'll try harder. You say, I'm a sinner deserving of condemnation. Have mercy on me, God. 
But if you're a Christian, know God more and more and make sure it's fruitful knowledge. See, there's a difference. Make sure you don't have barren and unfruitful knowledge, but it's fruitful. So look at where you are in those verses. Again, the verses five through eight. Spend some time meditating on that, praying on that. Do you see those things increasing? And even though they are, where do you kind of feel stuck? And then go back one and pray to God about to help you with that. And you can talk to me about it. I can help you, give you tips, advice, whatever. And then I'm going to challenge you, which is what God is doing, is to take a step forward. Do something that you don't usually do that would be godly because that's how you progress. It's with diligence. It doesn't just happen accidentally. So my challenge is to just be nice to someone, not because I'm going to get some, something, but because I care about that person as someone made in God's image and likeness because that's, that's where I'm kind of stuck is brotherly kindness. I'm going to pray. What's the one before it? I'm going to pray for godliness. And then I'm going to challenge myself to do something of brotherly kindness. Now I challenge you to do the same thing too. Because when you see those things increasing, then you've made your call and election sure, which means an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to know you better, to know you in a fruitful way, not just to know stuff about you, but to really know you and draw close to you and fruitful knowledge. God, help us to grow. Help that knowledge of of your grace and peace and promises lead to transformed lives. God, give us wisdom in, in where we're lacking, where you want us to grow. Please help me and my brothers and sisters to seek that out, to ask you for clarity and honesty about our, our shortcomings and not to look at it as condemning or as a failure, but as a is a place to grow and be more like Jesus. God, if there's someone listening who is not a Christian, I pray that that call will be clear to them. For those of us who are Christians, help us to help each other with this and to encourage each other in the increasing and not just get down on each other because we're not perfect. We thank you, God, that you have grace for us and peace for us. You have an interest for us into your kingdom. Through Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time And tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.